Hello, this is Akiva Weisinger, and welcome back to the Who the Heck is This Guy podcast with me, uh, a presentation of Misfit Torah uh, Ventures. Yeah, Ventures, that sounds about right. Uh, as many of you know, I have uh, not been able to podcast for the past couple of weeks, uh, being as I was moving away from Seattle and uh, going to the East Coast. Uh, right now, I am in a mountain cabin in Cresco, Pennsylvania. Uh, my grandmother lives here, and she has graciously given us the basement to uh, camp out for a little bit while my parents uh, renovate the basement to get ready for us. And uh, I am currently in a you know library with a fireplace and a big comfy chair. <clears throat> it is... Uh, quite reminiscent of the set of Masterpiece Theater. Uh, and if you want to picture me in front of a uh, in front of a crackling fireplace with a, you know, uh, with a tumbler full of bourbon uh, about to recite a story, uh, I would encourage you to do that because that is a fun mental image. Uh, so let's get on with the podcast. Um, this week we are going to be covering the Bal Haturim. Uh, a lot of you may be wondering why we're going to cover the Balaturim, but I promise you we are going to cover the Balaturim, and I'm going to justify it. But to begin with, as I, as I want to do, I like to ask a big question at the beginning of this podcast. And I would like to ask you, uh, listener, though I will not be able to hear your answer, uh, what barriers exist for a person who wants to advance their own biblical interpretations. Obviously, you know, the Torah is very important to us uh, religiously, and it would be nice if we we're all able to, you know, make our own interpretations of the Torah. Um, what barriers exist to prevent a regular, per <coughs> a regular person from doing that? So, uh, there's a number of different barriers. I asked this on the Facebook page. I got a lot of different responses. I'm going to talk about those responses and some other barriers that exist as well. The first and most obvious is knowledge of biblical Hebrew. Uh, this would have been uh, especially evident if Hebrew was not in existence as it was until, uh, as that was the state until very recently, uh, historically speaking, until Eliezer ben Huda revived the language. But uh, many of us still don't know Hebrew. Many of us still don't know Biblical Hebrew, which is a whole other different animal than modern Israeli Hebrew. Uh, the obvious thing is we don't know the meaning of the words necessarily. Uh, people don't people don't necessarily know the meaning of the words. But uh, also philology, they don't know where the words come from. Uh, grammar, biblical grammar, is uh, not something that is uh, entry level, so to speak. Uh, we don't know uh, historical uses of the words. We don't know whether the word that we use now in modern Israeli Hebrew is necessarily the same way that the uh, biblical Hebrew is used. Um, another obstacle, uh, not just the meaning of the Hebrew, uh, another less obvious obstacle is uh, knowledge of all of Tanakh to properly contextualize. Uh, you know, it's hard to advance an interpretation of a single verse of Tanakh when you don't know the, you know, wider context in which that verse exists, especially, you know, within the context of all of Tanakh. Maybe the word that, you know, you're having trouble interpreting here, that you're advancing a guess based on the, the root, uh, is used in other places in Tanakh, and that would give you a better context. Maybe the meaning of the story or maybe the meaning of the law is better understood within the context of 
all the laws or all the stories. Maybe the story is making an allusion to another story. Maybe the law is best understood within the context of a different law. Um, so not just you know knowledge of Tanakh context uh, is a barrier, but also extra biblical context, and that depends on you know the. Uh, the kind of interpretation you're making to, wanting to make. If you want to make an uh, interpretation based on you know, the simple meaning of the text or the historically accurate meaning of the text, uh, knowing Near East studies, knowing about the culture in which the biblical milieu is situated, or archaeological evidence to uh, properly interpret like what this thing is, um, linguistic. This goes back a little bit to biblical Hebrew, but uh, knowing, you know, Ugaritic roots would help you understand, uh, you know, some some words in the Bible, uh, some, you know, some some other uh, some other roots in the Bible. Um, if you're wanting to interpret it within the, you know, halachic, within the, you know, religious context. Knowing rabbinic text is very important. You want to know not just what that verse means in isolation, but how it's interpreted within the context of the rabbinical tradition, uh, as we spoke about with, you know, Rashi versus Rashbam and Ibn Ezra. Um, there's also uh, cultural considerations uh, that don't have to do with the accuracy of the text, but have to do with your right to interpret the text. Um, you could very well ask, who the hell am I to interpret the word of God? Um, you know, what does it matter, my interpretation, when there's already a halachic uh, interpretation, uh, when there's already like an accepted halachic interpretation? Who the hell am I to advance a uh, pure textual interpretation when I am not a college professor? I do not have the requisite level of expertise. Arguably, these barriers to entry uh, for advancing your own biblical interpretations are a good thing. Uh, it's an important religious text whose interpretation guides the practice of millions of people. Uh, please, please know what you're doing. Uh, the, it, if you interpret something to mean like actually child sacrifice is okay, I don't know how you would do that. Uh, but if you did that and that led to people like killing their children, that's a lot to put on your head. We, there's a reason we want experts doing this and not amateurs. But that also has bad effects to lock it off to all but the experts. Because uh, people could feel alienated from their own religion. People can feel that they don't have uh, an investment in their own religion. Um, children especially don't feel like the text is theirs. Uh, there's a certain value in giving children the ability to interpret things on their own and barring it to you know just experts. Uh, we get, fails to give students a sense that they have an investment in their religious ex experience. So how do we balance the need for expertise uh, with also the uh, ability, to, with the desire to give people access to the text? So I want to leave that question in the back of your minds for a little bit. We're going to talk about the Bala Turim. Uh, the Bala Turim, uh, his name is Rav Yaakov ben Asher. Uh, his father, Asher, is uh, Rav Asher ben Ichiel, otherwise known as the Rush, who's one of the most consequential halachic authorities in Ashkenazic history and also Sephardic history. We'll get into that at a later time, because Rav Yaakov is chiefly known for his halachic codification, the Arbiturim. Uh, literally, that means the four rows. It's a name taken from the description of the clothes of the high priest. Um, 
So, uh, which is where he gets his colloquial name for, uh, from, the tour. That's what, uh, you know, if you're in the know, so to speak, or if you're, you know, in those, in, in the circles in which this stuff is discussed, uh, they will tend to call him the tour. Um, literally, the row, it doesn't have to make sense in English. It's just saying the dude who wrote the Arbiturum. Uh, but when we talk about the Balhadurim, the work, the Balhadurim, uh, we're talking about the, uh, we're not, it's not referring to the actual title of the commentary in Chumash. It's saying the Balhadurim, the person who wrote the tour, the, uh, literally the master or author of the rose, is the person who wrote this commentary. It's the commentary that belongs to the person who wrote, you know, that commentary, uh, that, you know, halachic codification. Uh, we'll get into more of his background when we get to the description, uh, uh, to, to the episode about his halachic codification, because the stuff about his background is especially important for understanding his halachic point of view, but not necessarily important for understanding the goals of his Chumash commentary. So, the ori originally, the Tor, as we said, his, we call him the Tor, uh, the Tor meant to write a commentary on Chumash, which would be more or less an abridgment of the Ramban's commentary. We spoke about the Ramban last time. Uh, as we said, his commentary is very long. The Tor, I guess, was like, uh, you know, it's valuable for people to read this, but it's very long. Let me shorten it. Uh, the thing is, no one really cares about that commentary uh, because uh, we've sort of said, okay, the Ramban's long, but it's worth it. Um, I remember I had a rabbi who uh, told us that he bought the quote-unquote full edition of the Balaturim, and he told us, eh, it's not particularly useful. Uh, it's just the Ramban restated. Um, you know, there's a reason why the full edition didn't make it into our editions besides for the lack of space, which I'll get to, into later. Uh, so what we refer to the, uh, as the Balaturim is the thing he wrote as a side attraction. I remember one of my uh, rabbis growing up told me that uh, he heard a legend that the, the portion of the Balaturim that we call the Balaturim was written uh, in an evening when the tour couldn't sleep. Uh, it makes some degree of sense. Uh, the tour goes uh, in this, you know, short section of his commentary. Uh, listen, most of this is legitimate biblical commentary, the stuff which is the abridgment of the Ramban. But at the end of each Parsha, I'm going to throw in an appendix about all the quote-unquote hints in the Parsha and explain them. So back up. What do we mean by hints? So I would define that as stuff that is read into the text that arises from textual abnormalities rather than a straightforward reading. Um... You know, recall this is what the Rashmam thinks Torah Shabalpeh is, that uh, you uh, derive hints uh, that are left in like textual or abnormalities, like extra words, extra letters and stuff, and that becomes Torah Shabalpeh. Uh, the Rambala term takes that a little step differently. I wouldn't say step farther, he takes it a little step differently. I don't know if that's an expression, it is now. Um, let me give an illustrative example of the kind of hints that the ball term looks at and the one uh, genre people tend to strongly, most strongly associate with him. That is called gematria. Uh, what is that? Uh, it's an exegetical device which is present in rabbinic texts and also particularly in mystical texts where each letter is proposed to have a numerical value. So Aleph to Tet is one through nine and then you get to Yud, and you get to the tens places. Um, 
and then Yud through Yud Tetzadi is ten through ninety. You know, ten uh, is Yud, Chaf is twenty, so on and so forth. Then once you get to Kuf, that's one hundred, and then you go. The rest of the alphabet is the hundreds place. Kuf uh, one hundred, um, and then through Tuf to four hundred. That's itself pretty straightforward. Um, you know, you'll see that in modern Hebrew also that uh, sometimes a letter is replaced for uh, a letter replaces a number. What's not is then assigning numerical values to words on that basis. Let's take a fairly simple word, uh, kelev, which means dog. Okay, so you have chaf, which is twenty, uh, lamed, which is uh, lamed, which is thirty, and bet, which equals two. So add them together, that's 52. Now sometimes you stop there, and you go, Kelev represents the 52 whatevers, the 52 weeks in the year, and that means that dogs are something about 52 weeks in the year. I don't know. Uh, but then you can actually go a step further, because once you have the numer numerical value of that word, uh, if you find another word with the same numerical value, then you could posit that, oh, these two words are related, or these two words, names, places, whichever, uh, are related to Kelev in some way. Um, <clears throat> so let's take the word, and there there are, uh, you know, online tools which you'll enter in, like, a number, and it'll tell you, like, all the words that have that gematria. Um, so my sister, uh, so, uh, let's take the word Avital. Uh, Aleph is one, Bet is two, uh, Yud is, uh, ten, Tet is nine, Lamed is thirty, add that up, it's fifty-two. My sister's name is Avital, she loves dogs, wabam, clearly divinely ordained. Now, it could get even more involved than that. Uh, what if you add all the numbers in the final number that you got until you get one single-digit number, and then you have another word with the same, you know, single-digit number that you got when you added the one, uh, the ones in tens places? Uh, Wabam! That's another connection. Um, this is the thing that the Bala term is mostly known for doing, and this is what most people use the Bala term for. Uh, you know, you're you want a Vartora, You don't want something very involved. You're not, you know, somebody who likes to do all this like you know, massive research. You want to give a Vartora the Parsha. You look something up. There's a Gamantria. Okay, you know, nice Vartora, nice and offensive Vartora. Um, it's not the only thing that he does though. A lot of times he'll tell you this word is used this many times in all of Tanakh, which tells us X. Uh, sometimes it's genuinely useful. Uh, books of Tanakh making allusions to the Torah is a thing. Um, but most of the, what the Bala term does is along the lines of Gamasha. Uh, simple exege exegetical tools that purport to give a hidden meaning to the text by reading it as a code of sorts. That's how it would best define the Bala term. Bala term sees the Torah as codes, as having codes in them that he brings out, whether it be gematria, uh, whether it be uh, Roshi and Sofetevos, acrostics, or like endacrostics, if you read the first letter of each word, it spells out this. If you read the last letter of each word, it spells out this. Uh, Atbash, which is a kind of system to gematria, where you divide the uh, Hebrew alphabet into two halves, and then you, it's hard to explain without like a diagram, but basically... Uh, you line them up next to it. You line them up one on top of the other, and then you pick the letter uh, in reverse to the other one. So, like Aleph is, you know, reversed to Tuf. Uh, 
Bayes is reversed to Shin, hence Atbash, and then follows through. Hard to explain without a diagram, but you got to trust me on this. And then, you know, if you find that uh, one word in Atbash is, uh, is a different word, then those two are connected somehow. Um, he'll read into Creek Siv. Sometimes the Torah says uh, you read, uh, you know, this is pronounced differently than it's spelled, and sometimes he'll read into that. Uh, he'll read into, like, funny-looking letters or other scribal quirks that happen to be in the Torah. Um, and then there's also the occasional excerpt from his real commentary that sort of snuck in, uh, which is a little funny, if you ask me. I just have a strange sense of humor. So that's what the Baal term does. He reads codes that are in the Torah. Uh, so I can hear some of my audience protesting. Uh, this is a dumb way to read a text. Lots of unrelated things can be related on the basis of any of these tools. Someone with an agenda can make anything mean anything. I mean, did you see that post going around that said Donald Trump had the same gematria as Mashiach ben Yosef? Uh, that's obviously not, you know, re uh, religiously authoritative thought. Uh, why are you taking this stuff seriously? Why are you even making a podcast about it? And why are you dumbing us all down by talking about gematria? I mean, the only reason he's in Moschumashim is because it's short so they could cram in another commentary into a crowded page, which is true. Uh, the firm answer would be, shut up, God is infinite, of course you put hidden meanings in the Torah, you heretic. Uh, there might be something to that approach. Uh, you know, God is infinite, he might have put hidden meanings in the Torah, I'm not willing to rule that out, uh, even though that's not necessarily the way I would read a text most of the time. Uh, but let me advance a different idea as to what the purpose of these codes and, the and you know, why the Balaturim is not just tolerable, so to speak, but also, in a way, necessary. Uh, let me give you a little bit about my personal background. Uh, when I was a kid, I had a second-grade rabbi who was super into mystical stuff and taught us all about Gematria and then a bunch of bunch of Kabbalah concepts. Uh, it was, looking back, pretty weird. Uh, but Gematria appealed to me as a little kid. Uh, I was also into super... Uh, I was also super into secret agent stuff, so maybe the idea of a code to be broken uh, appealed to me. Uh, but it meant, chiefly, that armed with the knowledge of just basic addition, without all those, you know, barriers to entry that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, uh, you know, knowledge of biblical Hebrew, knowledge of, you know, philology, archaeology, uh, all of Gemara, all of Midrash, all of, you know, ancient Near East studies, without all that, armed with, again, basic addition, I could find meanings in the Torah by myself. Uh, so from that point on until well into seventh grade, in fact, I gave my bar mitzvah speech uh, on gematria. Um, I'm always proud to say that I was the only one in my grade who wrote my own bar mitzvah speech, and I wrote it about gematria. <clears throat> so, you know, from from second through se well into seventh grade, I would play around gematria as a way to understand the Torah that I was being taught. I'd latch on to a textual problem we were taught, uh, fiddle with gematrias a bit, and try to find an explanation. And then I'd write it on an index card and silently hand it to my teacher to check over. Uh, some of my teachers apparently still remember me as index card kid. Uh, fondly, uh, hopefully. Uh, one example I remember is as we were learning about the story of Dove and, Ye and Yehonatan parting, uh, it says that they were to meet at Hasela, which means the rock. Uh, now, the rock can only mean two things. Number one, Dwayne Johnson is older than we expected. 
Or we're supposed to know what rock that is because it says the rock rather than a rock. Uh, so I took out my Hebrew. So that's a textual problem that, you know, uh, was raised, I guess, by the teacher or maybe by a student. Um, or maybe it was like a Rashi and I wasn't satisfied with Rashi's answer. I don't quite remember. Uh, so I took out my Hebrew English dictionary and, you know, playing a hunch that I had, I looked at the word for sundial. And then I fiddled with Kamatra for a bit and determined that the rock was a sundial. And that's, you know, the index card that I handed to, to uh, my teacher. Uh, was that, objectively speaking, good analysis? No. Is it pshat? No. But armed, again, with a basic knowledge of addition, I felt confident enough to interpret the biblical text. I felt like it was mine, that I had investment in it, that I had something to contribute to its understanding. Over the years, I've aged out of my obsession with Gematria, and I've come to regard it as not the best way to understand the biblical text. I've evolved all the methods that we talked about as barriers for entry before. I know Midrashim, I know engineering studies, I know a little bit about grammar, though not as much as I'd like to, uh, and know, you know all these methods that make me a you know, somewhat competent interpreter of biblical text. Uh, but would I even be here without the Gematria stuff? Would I even have the confidence I have today without that initial confidence, investment, and belonging my obsession with Gematria fostered? I've often said that the reason I know the stuff I know, how to read Chumash and Gemara and Rishonim, is not because I'm inherently smarter than anyone else. It's because I was privileged enough to never be told I couldn't do those things. Being encouraged to continue with my Gematria stuff is a big reason why I felt able to tackle harder subjects. So maybe, and I know I'm going out on a limb here, and I don't know if Chazal meant this, but I'd like to think they meant this, uh, maybe the reason why Gematria exists is not because it's inherently and objectively a good method of reading the text. Maybe it's there so that even children, even people with a, with a very basic Jewish education, feel like they have some investment, that they have something to contribute to the tradition of biblical interpretation, that they have a place within that grand, you know, the, the grand old tradition of Jewish, you know, of Jewish biblical interpretation. Maybe it's there so that a precocious little kid can advance theories on the biblical text without yet having a PhD's worth of knowledge. Maybe it's there so that a person who had, for circumstances beyond their control, a Jewish education without a strong textual component can have something to say when they're asked to say Edvar Torah at their kid's wedding. Uh, in the circles in which I travel, there's a lot of snobbiness towards elementary understandings of Judaism, whether it be stuff like mantra or stuff like simple worldviews, uh, that's with some degree of justification, as I do believe we ought to have high expectations for our educational institutions and for the in intellectual standards of our people. But I think we need to recognize that no one starts out fully educated. You don't start swimming by just being thrown into the deep end of the pool. First, you start off at the shallow end, and slowly you work your way deeper. The Balaturim is a compendium of the shallow end of the pool of biblical interpretation. The part where you can play, walk around, get your feet wet, get used to the water, and build up the courage to go deeper. Sure, if someone never learns to swim, and indeed refuses to because they see nothing further than the shallow end, there's what to critique there. 
but we need to recognize the necessity of the shallow end and also recognize the shallow end is where a lot of people are right now and that's not the worst thing in the world because without the bolitorium i wouldn't be where i am today so next week we're going to handle some of the philosophical perishim those that bring their knowledge of uh, the philosophy of the medieval era to the text um that'll be fun i think um i'm not going to go through the list of uh you know uh you know qualities of bib of you know shot inter uh interpretation because bala terms sort of doesn't really apply he's the one commentary I'm very confident in saying that it's not necessarily meant as pshat. Um, so, yeah, next week we're going to handle the philosophical perishim. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast or uh, rate it on iTunes, which helps other people find this podcast. Uh, don't forget to, if you enjoy this podcast, uh, su consider subscribing to the Patreon uh, donating $5 a month so that this could continue to be a independent, uh, you know, source of rabbinic, uh, source of, uh, Jewish thought and that we can expand beyond this one podcast to have a whole network of podcasts of, uh, original and challenging Jewish thinkers. Um, and, uh, I'll see you next time.